So the Bible is full of people who have been challenged in their faith to trust and obey. It is one of the simplest truths out there. It is so easy to understand, but sometimes so difficult to put into practice. This morning, what I wanted to do is just look on one of those stories where they've been challenged in their life to trust and obey. And I want us to look at it with that lens on. How are these men trusting and obeying God? So if you have your Bibles, open them with me to Daniel chapter 1. As we go back in Israel's history, one of the things I like to do for Old Testament, because I often get lost where we're at in the midst of this, Daniel, the book of Daniel, uh, let me give a little bit of background where it's starting. So most of us know about a guy named David, right? He's the guy that killed Goliath with the slinging of the stones, right? He slid, he got him, right? Yeah. Then eventually David became king of Israel. He followed Saul. And he was king of Israel, and he had some ups, and he also had some downs, as we learn in Scripture. But when David died, Solomon, his second son, took over. And Solomon was king of Israel, and then when Solomon died, Israel split into a northern and a southern kingdom. The northern we refer to as Israel, and the southern we refer to as Judah. The northern was taken over by the Assyrians, and the southern was taken over by the Babylonians. The book of Daniel is focused on the southern kingdom. It's when the Babylonians are going to come into the southern kingdom and take siege on it. Okay? And so we're opening up the book of Daniel here. And in Daniel chapter 1, the siege led by King Nebuchadnezzar, okay, great name, taken over Judah and its capital, Jerusalem. This occurs in 605 B.C., History tells us that it's the first of three sieges in 605, and then we're counting down because we're in B.C., 597, and then finally 587. And so let's read in Daniel 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, that's part of the southern kingdom, uh, and besieged it. Let's skip to verse 3. Then the king, that's Nebuchadnezzar, commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to, to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank, and they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. So after the siege that happened in 605, Nebuchadnezzar wanted to take the best and the brightest of Israel back to Babylon. He does this not only to rob the Israelites of their future, but then he's instilling them into his government and training them in the ways of that. You see, it wasn't enough for Nebuchadnezzar to simply establish military control. No, he wanted to rob Israel of their future and have them re-identify as Babylonians. This re-identification process is what I'm going to call, he tries to Babylonize them. Okay? And he tries to Babylonize them, and we've seen this passage here, in four, in four ways. So we'll go through these pretty quickly. The first way he does this to try to re-identify these, these men is he isolates them. He moves them geographically away. This, uh, this journey from Jerusalem to Babylon would be a one to two month journey away. 
which means these young men would be away from their friends, their family, their culture, anything normal, their local street market, right? All this, all the food that they would eat, it's all different. And these young men are likely 14 to 15 years old in their formative years. Second, he indoctrinates them. He teaches them their ways, their literature and the language of the Chaldeans. That there was three years of schooling and tutoring. Some of you guys are going back to school this week. Hey, three years of schooling and tutoring. This is Babylon High School. And the final exam is that you stand before the king for an oral test. Third, he tries to re-identify them by compromising them. You see, as soon as they got to Babylon, he gave them Babylonian food. The same food and wine that the king ate and the king drank. He's trying to ease them into this culture. And fourth, he confuses them. He gives them new names. All four of the, the men we're looking at today had Jewish names that ended in El, which means God, or Aya, which is short for Jehiah, also meaning God. And he gives them Babylonian names related to their Babylonian deities. And so he's trying to re-identify them or Babylonize them. And I couldn't help but wonder, what if we were to take someone and we were trying to Californianize them, Right? And I thought about, okay, say, let's say, say we're trying to take someone, we want to Californianize them. Let's say we have uh, Bob, okay, and we say, hey, Bob, we're going to Californianize you. The first thing we would do is you got to say, if you want to be a true Californian, you got to move to California, right? You, got, you, you can't be a Californian unless you live here. Okay? Second thing I would tell Bob, I would say, hey, Bob, you know what we got to feed you? You got to eat some avocado toast. That's what the Californians eat, okay? You also got to be eating that in and out okay? You got to be there. Next thing, Bob... For whatever reason, people love to wear these stupid things. They're all putting on Crocs, okay? And so, Bob, you gotta, put a, you gotta slap some of those on and be walking around trending in those things. You gotta speak like a Californian. So that means you gotta say the word the in front of every highway or freeway. You gotta say the 91 or the 71, okay? In case you don't know that outside of California, they don't do that, okay? I had to, I had to help, people help me. Also, Bob, when you look out, and you see you can't see the mountains, that's not smog, it's just the marine layer, all right? Okay? <laughs> And finally, we would run a rename Bob. Instead of Bob, we call him something like Brody. You know, that way he'd fit right in with all the Californians, okay? And so among these men, they're getting Babylonized. Among these men are Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Well, Daniel is the title of the, of the book, so that we know him. The other three you may not recognize, but you may more recognize them by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so with that context set, we're now going to go ahead to skip ahead to chapter 3. Okay? So if we turn to chapter 3, these men now at this point, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they have spent more than three years in exile. They're living in Babylon. They finished Babylon High School. They graduated with A-plus honors. Okay? Um, and then they are working for the Babylon government alongside Daniel. And this is where our story picks up, Daniel 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent together the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and in case we missed you, all the officials of the provinces that come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So, Check it out. King Nebuchadnezzar is like the king of Babylon, which means he's at this point like the king of the world. He decides that he's going to make a huge statue. 
Now, I don't measure in cubits, so I transfer, I transfer that to like feet. It's about nine feet wide and 90 feet high. I'm terrible with spatial reasoning, so I have no idea if this, like, what this is. So I had to look up what's 90 feet approximately. If you're to take the Statue of Liberty and cut off the pedestal and not count the raised arm, that's like 110 feet. So it's, it's pretty big. So he makes this huge golden statue, and then he sends this Evite out to invite everyone out, right? He sends, I want the governors there, the magistrates, the treasurers, and you know, in case we missed you, we want all the officials there. But this wasn't the kind of Evite that you could just say, like, hit, like maybe, you know, or heart it, or like, we'll see, right? It's the king telling you, you're going to be on the plain of Dura because I invited you to be here, okay? Verse 3. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, and the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and, in case we missed you, all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before this golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse 4. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and, in case we missed you, every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be immediately cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Verse 7, therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So everyone comes out. This is, the, this is the big show. He's got a statue. It's built. It's out of gold. It's huge. He invites everyone who's anyone in his kingdom to come out. And then the herald proclaims, hey, music's going to go off. I don't know what all those instruments all sound like together. I can't imagine good. We can ask Tyler for some help on that one later, okay? But when you hear the music, you are to fall down and worship this. This image is not one that I'm used to. I'm not used to seeing people in my daily life worship things like that. I mean, I had to like do this on my own to God just to feel what this would feel like for them to go on their knees and fall down and worship a golden image. And so they set this scene here. King Nebuchadnezzar, I imagine, is probably pretty proud, feeling pretty powerful, and he's got all his magistrates there. He's got all his officials there. Everyone's there. This is his big day. Verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. Always a great way to start a conversation with the king. Okay? You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So there's these Chaldeans that come out. Now, Chaldeans is their ethnicity. Babylonians would be their nationality. These Chaldeans come forward and they go up to King Nebuchadnezzar and they go attack the Jews and not just the Jews, but specifically their leaders, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they're smart how they do it. They play right into the king's pride. 
They talk about what his decree was. And they say, hey, these three Jews, they, they don't trust and obey you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Did you catch it? They pay no attention to you. They don't trust you, king. And they don't serve your gods or worship you. They're not obeying you. So the king of the known world, on his big day, it's his big ball. Everyone's bowing down and worshiping. Then all of a sudden, three guys aren't going to do it. Let's see how he responds. Verse 13. Then King Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast into the burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Well, the king is furious. He's ticked off. He calls them in and commands them to worship the golden image that he made them. He's actually given them kind of like a, like a redo, right? You guys have ever been on the playground? And you go, oh, you know what? We're not sure how the rules went. Let's do a redo. So he calls Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He says, hey, we'll do a redo. You guys will play the music again. You guys will bow down, and we're all good. And just a reminder, if you don't, burning fiery furnace, right? You have a date with the BFF. <laughs> Interestingly here, the word for image is the word selim. It's kind of a fun word to say. Practice with me. Selim. And it means image. Okay? It's the same word that God uses when he creates man in Genesis 1. When God creates man in Genesis 1, he created man in his own image to be fruitful and multiply and to worship God to be in relationship with God. And the question now is posed to these three men. Will the image of God, that's man, bow to the image which man has made? Do you see that? Now, as we go, before we answer that question, here's what I want to talk about. What are some of the pressures that these three men are under? Well, the first pressure they're under is authority. You see, this is coming from Nebuchadnezzar himself, and he's the king of the world. In fact, if we were studying the book of Daniel in chapter 2, he just had his dream interpreted that he's the most powerful ruler. Second, they face the pressure of conformity. There is an incredible amount of people around them bowing down. I don't know about you, but when a bunch of other people around me do the same thing, there's that pressure to kind of go, if they're doing it, maybe I should do it too. If they're putting on Crocs, maybe I should be wearing some of those ugly things too. Third, <laughs> sorry, it's really going after those today. Uh, third, my son has a pair, by the way, so if you're Croc owners, you're all right. Third, uh, malice. Other Chaldeans went out of their way to accuse these men. And fourth, intimidation, right? The punishment is a barbecue featuring you. So they got all these pressures mounting on this decision. If I was in their position, maybe I would think about reasons to compromise. Maybe I would think of a reason to just say, you know, if I just bow down this one time, you don't understand, I got a government job. Like in my day in, day out of work, like I do good things. So if I just bow down this one time, I don't die and I can keep doing good. Or 
Maybe they just go, we'll just pretend. We'll bow down and like in our hearts, we're not going to really be worshiping. We'll just live it. Right? All these pressures going on them. All these reasons to justify. Before we go further in the story, here's my question. When you're faced with difficult situations, when you have difficult choices in your life to make, what pressures are on you? And what reasons do you have to compromise? How do you handle that? So let's get to our story now. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. These three men recognize this is the epitome of the commandments that God has laid out for them. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 and 4, it's literally number one and number two. You shall have no other gods besides me. You shall not have false idols. They recognize no way. So they stop and they tell the king, hold on. Save yourself running the whole orchestra. We don't need to go there. They didn't deliberate. They didn't have a quick little huddle and a council and like, hey, what do you guys think? They had already decided and resolved where they stood on this matter. See, you need to be ready to answer the questions before the circumstances around you pose them. And their response demonstrates three characteristics that I want to look at of what trusting and obeying mean. Here's the first one. The response demonstrates an understanding of who God is. The response demonstrates an understanding of who God is. First, by holding the power and truth of God. You see, they are confident in the power of God. Did you catch it in verse 17? They say, he is able to deliver us. They recognize God's ability and his power. They understand who God is by holding the power and truth of God, but secondly, by guarding the freedom of God. See, in verse 18, the start of verse 18, it says, but if not, or I love how it says it in the NASB version, it says, even if he does not. They were completely submissive to God's will. What they're saying here is we are confident in God's ability but we're not sure what is his purpose. What they're saying is, we may not be certain of what God will do, but we are certain what we will not do. See, they're unsure of God's circumstantial will, what he's going to do in this moment, but they are certain of his revealed will, that you shall have no other gods besides me. They understand who God is, is unchanging. And he has already made his will clear in this situation. It's not open for interpretation or deliberation. There's no need to rationalize or pretend. I think too often in our life we wonder, what's God's will for me? And so many of those times, it's already been laid out for you in Scripture. We just need to know who God is. We need to understand who he is. Secondly, 
The response demonstrates a trusting relationship. The response demonstrates a trusting relationship. In the heat of the moment, what guides their decision is understanding who God is, but also because they trust God with all of their heart. You see, trust is relational. In a relationship, trust is established. It's built, grown, and challenged. With God, his trust is established since the beginning of creation. His promises and covenants can be trusted because he's never failed us. These three men have built a relationship with God and trust him completely, independent of conditions and even in the midst of trials. I couldn't help but assume this relationship must have been what have carried them through going under the life and rule of another king and kingdom, finishing three years of Babylon high school, trying to instill their beliefs and their values on them, and then working for the government afterwards. See, you can take away everything in my life. You can rename me. You can teach me your ways, but you can't take away my king. Amen? Their response demonstrates they have a relationship with God and they trust him all the way. Third, their response demonstrates an obedient faith. Their response demonstrates an obedient faith. This is true faith. They have resolved before they came to this trial that they would not cross this line. They don't wait till when the pressures are the greatest to decide what they will do. What matters to them is not deliverance, but obedience. See, if our faith is we only get what we want, that's superficial obedience. I'll follow you, God, if I get whatever I want. Let me explain it this way. I have uh, my son, Jack. He's been doing chores this summer. He's not being obedient when he's doing those chores. He's being employed. I'm giving him an allowance at the end of the week. See, he does the chore and I give him the money. Real obedience is this even if he does not type of faith. Are you willing to follow God if life doesn't go the way you want? See, obedient faith stops us from equating success in the world with God's love. That type of faith needs to get undone. Obedient faith trusts God no matter the results. And these three men give us a picture of obedient faith. They know who God is, what are his commands, and what is their response going to be. Faith doesn't predict God's ways. Faith obeys God's truth. I couldn't help but wonder, is, is my faith and is your faith and even if he doesn't type of faith? Does your faith remove the circumstances to determine if and when you will follow Christ? Let me explain it this way. Even if God doesn't blank, will you still trust and obey? Even if God doesn't give me the raise that I was hoping for, will I still trust and obey? Even if God doesn't give me the financial security, will I still trust and obey? Even if God doesn't give me the perfect family, will I still trust and obey? Here's a hard one. Even if God doesn't heal the person I've been praying for, 
will I still trust and obey? About five years ago, my father-in-law got diagnosed with leukemia. So my wife and I got together, got on our knees, and started praying for him. And over the course of the year, he went through all kinds of treatment. And we were on our knees praying for healing. And at the end of the year, he lost that battle. And it was hard. And we were pressed with this question. Even if God doesn't heal the way that we are hoping for, will we still trust and obey? And our answer to that is yes, but it has undoubtedly been really difficult for us. I've learned this, even if he doesn't, faith for me has been founded on God's character. It's built over time, and it trusts him completely. These three men modeled with their response what trusting and obedience looks like. Well, the king hears this response. He's already furious, so he's obviously thinking on the right mind. Then he tells, he gets heard from them, we're not going to bow down, king. You don't have to run the orchestra. So verse 19, Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Verse 21, then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. So the king is even more furious. His face was altered, and his rage transfers from his face to the furnace. He orders it to be heated seven times hotter. It's maximum heat, so hot that he takes his mighty men, not his weakling men, his mighty men to bind these guys up, carry them up to the top of the furnace, and throw them in. But on their way up, the furnace is so hot, those men die, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fall in. Verse 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. See, the king is watching this and he's waiting for them to burn. He's proving himself right and showing off his power. He's there, he's licking his chops. Yeah, put him in the burning, fiery furnace. Let's watch. But then something happens he didn't expect. He goes and he asks, he goes, wait, hold on. I thought we bound three men. I thought it was just three. Why is there a fourth man in there? He looks like a son of the gods. Well, I'm not going to take my theology from a Babylonian. It is very likely that this fourth person is the angel of the Lord, that is, pre-incarnate Christ. You see, but God in the midst of the trial meets them in the trial. See, God doesn't keep them out of the furnace. He meets them in it. It's not the temperature of the fire. It's who's in it with you. 
God will be with you in your trials. That's a promise. Look how Isaiah 43 puts it. It'll come up here on the screen. Isaiah 43 says this. There we go. Thank you for that. That helped. Okay. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You see, God is promising that even in the midst of trials, he will be with them. So King Nebuchadnezzar sees this. We pick up in verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power of, over the bodies of those men. In fact, the hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. The king's so confused, he calls them out. And God doesn't just save these men from the heat, but also from the fall, that they're not, they don't have any broken bones, their clothes aren't singed, they didn't die from toxic fumes, they're just hanging out in the fire when he calls them out. They're not like in a rush, like, oh my gosh, it's hot. They're just like chilling there. It's almost as if they're waiting for the king to believe what he's seeing before he calls them out. And when he calls them out, Scripture reminds us it's not just the king there. Remember the big party on the plain of Dura? It's everyone. It's the governors, the satraps, the prefects. Everyone's there. They're all witnessing it. They're all seeing what is happening. See, this impact would have had an impact on the king. Yes, it would have had an impact on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But think about the impact it had on everyone else. All these officials are going to go home and go, hey, babe, I got to tell you what happened. It was crazy. All the other Jews are going to go, they didn't bow down. Did you hear that story? They trusted and obeyed God. See, you never know the impact or influence you might have by trusting and obeying God. Verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against God, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. See, Nebuchadnezzar recognizes the Most High God. He renounces his decree. He blesses the three men and then increases their influence. I wanted to go through this story this morning to inspire us, to convict us as well, but to inspire us to see people that do this in their life. They take these steps of faith to trust and obey. Some of you guys may be sitting in this room and you've never done that with God. 
You've never trusted and obeyed God. You're here just checking it out. Somebody invited you. Somebody asked you to come here. And they said, hey, come check it out. And, and this morning, I'm telling you, you're not here by accident. Trusting God starts with this. It starts with, the, uh, with an admission of what our condition is. That we all have sin in our life. The Bible says it this way, that in Romans 3.23, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It means that we've all messed up. And in Romans 6.23, it says the wages of sin is death. What we earn from our actions is death. And that's talking about spiritually being separated from God forever. But in Romans 5.8, it says, but God demonstrated his love in this. He sent Christ to die on the cross, living a perfect life in payment for us. Trusting God means you're going to surrender your life to him. And then obedience, obedience is the follow through of this. It's submitting your life to God every day. If you've never done that today, it can be the first day you do that. Find me, find somebody else, talk to me about it. Let's have a conversation. If you're not sure but you want to have more, let's talk. If you've already done this and you're a Christian, you're a follower of Christ, you've already trusted and obeyed that far. Will you keep going? Will you keep trusting and obeying God? You see, trusting and obeying God are intertwined. If we trust, then we will obey. If we try to trust and not obey, that's going to be a superficial relationship. And if we try to obey and not trust, well, that's going to be a manufactured one. Obedience is a pouring over of our trusting relationship. It's a concept that Jesus talks about in John 15, that if we abide in Christ, then we will bear much fruit. This is the core of the Christian life. Solomon wrote in Proverbs about trusting and obeying. We're going to go to Proverbs chapter 3. You can flip over there now. As you head over to Proverbs 3, these verses that we're going to look at have become so popular. They're the epitome of what a lot of people call the coffee cup verses. You know the ones that are printed on the side of the coffee cup? Yeah. Or you go to Hobby Lobby and you'll find it as a poster or a throw pillow or it's in like distressed wood. It's so popular that even in and out on the, underneath the shake cup has Proverbs 3, 5 written under there. Okay, a little pro tip for when you're Californianizing Brody. Okay. And sometimes the problem with over-familiar verses is they lose the power behind them. You read it as if you're, like, if you're in a fog. Oh, I know that one. I want you to look at this verse again with fresh eyes. Let's look at Proverbs 3. We're going to read verses 5 through 8. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. We're going to break it down just a little bit. Go to Proverbs 3, 5, 8. It says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. See, trust is relational. We don't trust God with part of our heart or part of our life. It's all of it. And if you need to learn that he is trustworthy, start reading the Bible. He has never failed us and will never forsake us. Trusting God is not the same as understanding him. Trusting him means transferring your hope and confidence from yourself to him. 
Trust the Lord with your shortcomings. Trust him with your failures. Trust him with your relationships. Trust him to provide, to care, to protect, to love. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. See, leaning is a posture we take. It's one we use when when something is supporting us. And as soon as we trust God with all of our heart, our first tendency might be, oh, I'll just lean a little bit on my understanding. See, not leaning on my understanding doesn't mean that I lean on God's understanding. No, it means I fully rely on God's understanding. We're removing our finite, limited knowledge and instead asking God to guide us. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Acknowledging God in all your ways, this isn't a tip of the cap. Acknowledging God isn't, hey, God, let me tell you all my plans so, God, you can get on board. Acknowledging him in all your ways is submitting your life to his lordship. It's a daily seeking of God's wisdom and building this relationship. And God says that he will make straight your paths or he will direct your paths. This doesn't mean it will always go the way that you see best fit, but it will be aligned with what he has planned. Notice this is a promise here. He will make straight. Not he might, not he maybe, that when we trust him and acknowledge him, he will direct Verse 7, be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Consider this verse with Daniel 3. They weren't wise in their own eyes. They didn't think that they knew what was best. See, being wise in our own eyes, that's called pride. Pride is this self-instilled notion that, that you know best. Pride is a tough wrestle for anyone out there. And Christians are not left out of that anyone especially seasoned Christians. It's so easy to flex our wisdom. Obedience requires humility. They feared the Lord. Those three men feared the Lord. They would rather face the consequences of a burning, fiery furnace than disobey God. This fear isn't a cower fear, but it is a healthy awe and respect They wanted their choices to be aligned with God, not have God's will align with their desires. Then they turned away from evil. They denied King Nebuchadnezzar his demand. When you recognize sin or evil, do you run toward it or do you turn away from it? Now, when I ask that question that way, maybe a lot of you guys go, that's an easy one. I run away from it. What if I ask the question this way? When you recognize sin in your life, do you see how close you can get back to it without crossing that line? Do you dance a little bit more? Or do you see that sin and go, that will not be a part of me anymore. I'm going to repent and turn away. I want to challenge you guys in two ways this morning. The first challenge I have for you is, have you evaluated your life with this lens of trusting and obeying? Have you evaluated your life with this lens of trusting and obeying? Meaning, in your life, what's an area maybe you're not trusting or obeying God? 
I ran into my dad afterwards. He goes here um, after first service. He goes, man, it is one of the simplest truths to understand that we trust and obey. It is one of the hardest things to do sometimes to trust and obey. I was thinking about in my life, where, where is it difficult? Where do I struggle in trusting and obeying? And you know what I came to is I came to my phone. My phone is a phenomenal resource. It is a great tool. But my phone can also be a direct pathway to sin. You see, my phone can replace the need of turning to God when I'm worried, when I'm nervous, and I can run to it as a distraction. Whether I play a game or I watch a show. I don't see what the Bible says about a problem. Sometimes I see what Google says about the problem. You see, my phone can be an avenue for sin in the areas of lust, gossip, envy, and laziness. And I've learned that I need to put limitations onto what I stream, what I let my eyes consume. I've had to delete apps on here because they create unhealthy rhythms in my life. It wasn't easy doing this, and it sure wasn't easy admitting this to my wife that I go, I'm not strong enough, but I have to delete these apps. They can't be on my phone anymore. And in doing so, it has helped me trust and obey God. It's helped me put the focus right back there. In your life, is there an area in your life that you need to trust and obey God? Maybe it's your phone too. Maybe it's something different. Maybe instead of an area in your life, it's a position God has placed you in. As a father, as a son, as an employee, as a grandma. What is a role or position God has placed you in? And in that role, are you trusting and obeying God? See, as a father and a husband, the Bible has clear instruction for you on what that looks like on a daily basis. What's the way you can evaluate your life this lens of trusting and obeying? Second challenge. In Daniel 3, here's the one thing I left out. One of the things I love about Daniel 3. Those three men, they made that choice together. Alongside one another. You see, the Bible tells us to not neglect meeting together. That we need to gather and we need to worship. We need to gather and study scripture together. But it is really, gosh darn difficult to feel known in a crowd. It's hard to feel known if, if, if you're in the crowd. You can't get into real life with people unless you're in a smaller group. You, you're not going to be missed. You need people that can go below knee deep with you and you can dive in all the way. And so here's my second challenge. If you don't have another group here at Chino Valley Community Church, I'm going to encourage you, step out in faith and jump into one. What are you waiting for? This fall, we're launching small groups and ABFs, and there's like, all, there's like a million things to open. If you're not involved in one, get involved in one. Because God is going to do incredible things because of that. I'm convinced of it. I've seen it in my life. I've seen it in my friend's life. I've seen it in my wife's life. I've seen it in people that I've discipled. That's really where growth happens, when you're in the weeds with people. They did it alongside each other. Find people to get in the weeds with you. Verse 8, it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. If following God's not going to be easy. Following God will bring trials and hardship. 
It's guaranteed. It's promised. But joy is found in God. Joy is found in living out our purpose. God has created us with specific design. And when we trust and obey, we'll be living out our purpose. And that will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to preach your word. Lord, I pray that I have been faithful to your text. God, I thank you that you care so much about us, that you give us your word for us to learn and to study and to to grow us, to challenge us. Lord, that you desire a relationship with us. Lord, and we're committed here at Chief Valley Community Church to doing that with each other. God, I pray that we would we would be a group that doesn't, we're not just a crowd. Lord, that we, we do real life with each other here. God, I pray that we would have relationships where people can challenge us in our faith and help us trust and obey you. God, I thank you for the story of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. Lord, I know that in my life, there have been times that I have resisted obedience, but God, there has never been a time in my life that I've regretted it. (sighs) Father, I pray for our church. Lord, would we be people that trust and obey you? Lord, I believe that would bring you honor and glory. And that is our desire. God, we thank you for this morning. We pray that you would go before us this week. It is in your son's precious name that we pray. Amen.